Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. I know that a lot of you have listened to the chapter episodes telling the story of the early online services like Prodigy, Genie, and AOL, of course. But it always sort of bothered me that we gave short shrift in those episodes to CompuServe. True, AOL was the dominant online service when the web exploded in the 1990s. And a lot of people got their first taste of online living via AOL. But CompuServe predated AOL by decades, at least depending on how you count it. And it is CompuServe that can lay claim to a lot of the earliest online innovations. And so today we're going to talk to CompuServe's co-founder and first CEO, Jeff Wilkins. Jeff recounts for us CompuServe's founding in 1970 the launch of its consumer-facing service in 1980, and yes, all of the innovations that CompuServe brought to life. For example, the first commercial email product, the first newspapers online, the first airline listings online, and most interestingly, CB Simulator, the granddaddy of all chat apps in the world. Toward the end of this episode, we even revisit the famous AOL CD carpet bombing campaign, from a whole new angle, and Jeff shares his insights about why AOL was able to become the dominant online service of the 1990s. Please enjoy this conversation with Jeff Wilkins. Jeffrey Wilkins, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Sure, Brian. Happy to do it. So I always like to get a little bit of background in terms of uh, how people got into tech. And um, sometimes I usually ask, you know, um, what sort of computers you were into as a kid. But I guess uh, personal computers weren't around <laughs> when you were a kid. But I, I get the sense that you were probably sort of a geeky, gadgety sort of sort of kid anyway. Well, you're going to kind of date me on the computer idea. I, I, yeah, I'm yes, sorry I, about that. Yeah. I, de- I definitely was always very interested in science as a kid. I was a uh, one wanted- point the earliest ham radio operator in the United States at eight years of age and in high school built rockets and uh, started a, a, a business while I was in high school and so always been kind of a combination of technology and entrepreneurship. And you uh, when you go to college you, you pursue an electrical engineering degree so I, I, I'm guessing at that point that's when you do um, uh, start to work with computers. Give us a sense is this is this the era where like uh, we're switching from like analog to actual digital computing? Oh, you got it exactly right. I, uh, I pursued uh, a bachelor's and a master's degree in electrical engineering at the University of Arizona, and my master's thesis was building an interface between a, a high-speed digital computer and an analog computer to do simulations. So I had a little, little experience with both machine language programming and working on hardware. And so um, this this experience in college with the computers, like, it, it, it's it's going <laughs> to... It's going to come into into play almost immediately in your career. So, around is it around 1969, 1970 that that um, you you get a call from your father-in-law and and that sort of starts the ball rolling towards what becomes CompuServe, right? 
Well, it's sort of like that. Actually, in graduate school, I had started another little business that was installing, building and installing alarm systems in homes in Tucson, Arizona. Hmm. Had a small small team of about nine people. And so while I was in graduate school, I was working on that company and uh, got a call kind of out of the blue from my father-in-law, who I didn't know very well, who, who said uh, he was working on a new insurance business and they needed some help building software to, to to do the generalized accounting things that insurance companies do. And, you know, did I know anything about that? I told him I didn't, uh, but I said I'd be happy to see if I could find somebody who who might be interested in working with him on the project. Um, so I, I had a couple of friends in grad school I asked, and one of them stepped up and said he'd be quite interested. His name was Alexander Trevor. Uh, but unfortunately, about a month after we had the conversation, uh, he was pulled into the Vietnam War and, and went off to and went off to Saigon to work on a computer center there for military. No so without uh, without him as first choice, I then was lamenting at lunch one day, and this other uh, fellow by the name of John Goltz, who was a, a brilliant uh, programmer, he was finishing his PhD, said, "Well, I might be interested." So I uh, took uh, put John and I on an airplane and flew back to Columbus, Ohio, uh, where my father-in-law's business was, and put the two of them together and said, if I can ever be of any help to you again, let me know. And I went back to graduate school and working on my burglar alarm company. About uh, nine months later, I got a call and they said, well, we're going to be in Las Vegas for the fall joint computer conference, which was the kind of the big conference in those days. And would like you to come up and help us look around and recruit. We're thinking about some new ideas. So I, um, I met them there. I was in Tucson, of course, pretty close. And, went out to dinner and, and they said, uh, my father-in-law said, John has an idea. Instead of building this life insurance system on a, what, what was then called a, sort of a mid -com mid-sized computer, I think it was a PDP-9 maybe at the time, he said, John would like to buy a big uh, bigger computer and sell services to other companies using a process called timesharing. Well, I hadn't heard too much about timesharing except watching baseball. You know, the General Electric had a timesharing machine they'd compute the batting averages up to date. It seemed like an interesting idea. And they said, oh, by the way, John really doesn't want to run the business. John would like you to join the company, and would you be interested in doing that? And so I looked at, uh, I, I asked the obvious questions, you know, how much capital do you have to put in this business? And um, I really didn't know much about it, but I, I said, you know, I'll think it over. And so I went back to Tucson and said to my wife, um, you know, your your dad's got this idea, and John Boltz has given him this idea to expand the business. They want me to come back and run the business. What do you think? She says, absolutely not. I don't want to go to Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> so that began that began the negotiation, and in January of 1970, uh, with my nine-month-old daughter and my, my wife, who by then was very excited about the idea, we moved to Columbus, Ohio. So um, can I can I interrupt? Sorry, just to be clear. So this is sure. this is the insurance company sort of deciding to start a side business that is a timesharing business, right? Yes, they really were. Uh, they, they really wanted the life insurance data processing uh, mm. to to help themselves. But John Goltz was a very good salesman and actually convinced them there was a much bigger opportunity in selling timesharing services. And and just. Um, uh, just for the benefit of the audience, um, the, the, the analogy for time sharing it would be similar to what you would call the cloud today. But in essence, it, w it wasn't just storing data elsewhere. It's also, you know, leasing computer processing power from from a computer that's elsewhere. 
it was exactly cloud computing. I get such a kick out of the out of the term cloud computing when I first started <laughs> using it. It was like this magical new thing. It was it was exactly the same. It was you know it was processing power, it was storage, it was communications, and it was software. So, uh, but but John Gold, uh, who really I think is you know primarily responsible for the early success of the company, had actually rewritten the operating system for the DEC PDP10 which was the mainframe uh, that we were using. And so we were able to get uh, dramatically improved throughput in that machine and other folks who were using it. And of course it ran circles around the other mainframes of the day that IBM 360 and other systems that were out there. So uh, we, had, we actually had a, had a great situation. We had a, a, a parent company, which was called Golden United Life Insurance, uh, who was willing to put the capital up we had um, you know people very willing to support these young guys who wanted to build this time sharing company, and we got started in an old grocery store with a phone book and a folding chair. So you you buy a I guess it's a, a PDP fifteen. So you have your own mainframe to to start this business, right? Actually, it was a PDP ten. Okay. Um, a PDP ten was a uh, was a multitasking machine. Uh, was really the best sort of hardware for time sharing of its time. Uh, and there were very few people using it, and that's what we, we bought one of those and put it in this old building, and that was the beginning. And uh, actually, got there about uh, February or March of 1970. Well, as, aside from obviously the the computing power itself, um, time sharing requires data networks, and so if this is if this is 1970, you know the ARPANET itself is barely a, barely a year old at this point. So, what sort of networking system do you guys set up? Well, um, of course, you have to remember that when we started, it was just one mainframe in Columbus, Ohio, and we had local dial-up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to, to local businesses. And, and, of course, there were all low-speed lines, you know, 110 baud, you know, modems were the, you know, 10 characters per second on teletypes. I mean, it was really the dark ages. But, uh, again, to um, to John Goltz's credit, uh, you know, he foresaw the day when we would need to build our own network. And, in fact, it wasn't too many years later that um, – um, we actually built our own version of ARPANET uh, with a which network, and we began to connect our other offices that by that time we were opening. We opened offices in obviously the nearby cities, Pittsburgh and Cleveland, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, places like that, Chicago, moved to New York, and we started to move across the country. Uh, and we had to have this network in place because uh, t- telecommunications was highly unreliable and, and leased lines in those days. And of course, speeds began to pick up. You know, then there was 300 baud, and then there was 1200 baud. But but we would but we built the high speed network that I actually think was one of the critical success factors for CompuServe. So by building your own network, you're not you, you don't have to piggyback on top of Ma Bell. Um, you've got your own system set up eventually. Well, we would buy we'd buy lease lines, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, in those days. But but yes, no. We we eliminated most of the problems. So we built in redundancy, redundant paths. You know, it became ever more sophisticated as time went on, until eventually uh, we, we created the whole division called CompuServe Network Services, which connected cities around the world. But it started very small. Um, so when it's just a timeshare business, um, you're you're focusing mostly on on corporate customers, I would imagine, right? Exactly. Um, you know, in the beginning, we sold machine cycles. Uh, we really didn't have any application software. We were just uh, seeking people who were looking for excess or external computer capacity. They'd write their own programs in Fortran or BASIC. Um, and then, but very quickly, 
we began to develop some applications in some very specific targeted markets. We were we were quite successful in engineering at first uh, with design programs, and then we started in the financial area, built a lot of systems around financial databases that we serve investment banking firms in New York and Chicago, and uh, and then very quickly after that we we invented invented and built the first commercial electronic mail in the country. Uh, we developed a product called Infoplex, uh, which uh, was a, was the first real commercial email that was ever brought into the market, and that was about 1974. So, uh, actually, we'll come back to that in a second. But I, I just want to underline. So, what you're saying is is that uh, traditional timesharing services are just that, like providing the pipes and charging for the for the time or the usage and the data and that sort of thing. But what you're saying is that you guys start to um, Add your own prepackaged applications um, to just uh, leasing the pipes. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. We tried to move up the value chain very quickly. You know, you're not going to be very. It's very hard to differentiate. Uh, you know, selling a commodity like machine cycles. So we quickly moved from that to selling tools. You know, tools being uh, compilers that were more capable of our competitors. But even beyond that, we moved quickly to applications because that's really where the value add was. And uh, just for uh, historical context, um, so who are the who are the competitors around this time in the timesharing business? Things like, I guess, ADP. Who who else is is your competitors? Well, um, the in the beginning it was General Electric and Service Bureau, uh-huh. the two principal ones. Uh, you know, the IBM subsidiary, and then General Electric, of course, timesharing. Uh, and then there was a company up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, called Cyphernetics. Uh, which also used PP10s, and uh, they they were actually uh, started maybe even a little bit ahead of us, uh, and they were acquired by ADP. That's where ADP got their start, really, in the business. And uh, so they were they were a tough competitor, um, but it was a growing market, and they did well, and we did well. And uh, there was another company called Timeshare that came along. Uh, it was out on the uh, on the West Coast, and um, you know there were. I will tell you one of my favorite stories is uh, we, we took us well, when I first, back up just one second. Sure. When I first came to Columbus, um, one of my concerns was I wanted to have control over the business. I really didn't want people looking over my shoulder. So I made a kind of a deal that said, as long as I hit the numbers, uh, I have complete autonomy here. My father-in-law was a great guy. He became my best friend. I really didn't know him very well at the time that we were doing all this, but I, he ultimately became my best friend. Um, I gave him a business plan that said we'd lose $525,000 before we turned uh, turned profitable. And uh, it took us two years, and we, we went to negative 512 before we turned profitable. Um, and uh, But in, that two, in those two years, when we're burning money like you do in a startup, uh, there were some pretty rough moments. And one of them I recall was um, I used to get all these, uh, uh, they called them red hair. They were, excuse me, uh, statements filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission when you're going to go public. And in those days, everybody kind of went public. So I would get a lot of these S1s. And, and one year, I think it was 1971, there were 50 companies that had filed to go public selling timesharing services. Hmm. And a year later, there were 250 companies. So that's what we would call, know, that, call that a bubble these days. Oh, my God. It was a terrible bubble. And, you know, while I was pretty confident that our technology was solid and that, you know, our strategy was sound, uh, it, it was still a pretty scary number. 
and uh, I knew we had to get to uh, get to profitability so that we were, you know, we would we would survive because most of these companies didn't survive at all. And like like all bubbles, they burst and people merge and most go out of business. And that's exactly what happened in the time sharing business. But um, anyhow, uh, my point of all this was that we we hit our numbers. We got it profitable. Uh, we did it through both strategy and through you know sound technology, and so we were off to the races. And it it spins out as its own company at some point, right? A couple of years later, we spun it out from the insurance company. The insurance company was public, and so we just took CompuServe shares and distributed them out to the shareholders of the uh, insurance company and began to trade on NASDAQ. Okay, so again, to, to place this in the timeline, around uh, the mid-'70s is when the um, – the microcomputer industry starts to take off initially with hobbyists, but then towards the end of the decade into the uh, modern PC industry that, that we know today. So walk me through realizing or where the idea comes from or whatever the evolution is that, that you guys start to think that maybe there could be a consumer-facing uh, service here as opposed to just servicing um, uh, corporations and, and, and those sorts of people. Well, um, sure, I'll tell you, it was grounded basically in asset uh, utilization. I, I used to look at, the, uh, look at the usage curves on the mainframes uh, by the mid-70s, and they sit, let's say, 76, 77. I could, show, I could plot the usage, and there would be two peaks in the, in the day. There'd be a peak in mid-morning, and there'd be a peak in mid-afternoon, and nighttime would be, would be flat, you know, dead mostly. Um, and even though we were spread by that time across three time zones, and so the peaks would be off by an hour, depending on your time zone, uh, you know, it was a, I thought it was a pretty poor waste of resources to have all that iron sitting around not generating revenue in these, all these other hours. So I was trying to figure out uh, the kinds of things we could use them for to get some better utilization. And, uh, of course, I, as an individual, I'm kind of an early adopter. I'm always looking at the, you know, kind of the latest gadgets and, and in fact I usually owned the first of any of them that became available and you know I started to pay attention to, to personal computers I didn't buy one but I started reading about them and, and I realized that their capability was very limited and they were limited principally in the speed with which they could compute the languages that, that, could, that could be used and um, I thought you know maybe there's some way we could connect these mainframes to some of these personal computers and increase their capability. Um, so, um, to one of the gentlemen whose names I mentioned earlier, Sandy Trevor, who, by the way, came back from Vietnam successfully oh. <laughs> all in one piece and, uh, eventually became, uh, head of technology and John Goltz moved to Tucson and headed our research and development labs there. So, uh, Sandy Trevor was, uh, very, uh, uh, very creative. And so as I would throw these ideas out about things we might be able to do, he, he would think about them and come back with ways in which we could do it. So um, we, we, we decided to put up a service that we could then test and see what people might do. And fortunately, in Columbus, there was an organization called the Midwest Association of Computer Clubs, I think, or something like that. I think I had 100 users. So um, we took some of our services, our electronic mail, um, and uh, some of our stock, uh, our financial information, and put it up on a 
just a bare bone service to see what if people would use it. And uh, I remember going in at night, watching the bank of modem to see if anybody was logging on and I, you know, going some nights and nothing would happen. And then little by little, a light started blinking. And uh, that told us that there was indeed a demand out there to do something other than just use the personal computer with the programs that they could write for them. So you, you, you targeted the, the hobbyists first. Absolutely. Yes. Because, because they were willing to work around all the, the glitches and so forth and, and help and give us feedback and help us build the service. Was there was there any uh, resistance um, to to moving in a consumer direction? I mean, you already have this successful business in the corporate arena, um, and so you're you're basically going off in a new direction here that's unproven in terms of a market. Was there any resistance to going in that direction? Well, it was a complete cultural mismatch inside the company. Uh, you know, I worked really hard along with others to build a, a great professional sales organization that sold to corporate America. Uh, you know, we had a lot of guys that, that, you know, came from IBM backgrounds or Xerox places that had great training programs. And, you know, when, when I said well, we're going to sell a service to hobbyists, you know, you, you get these looks like, what are you thinking? So um, essentially, I decided to do it as a skunkworks project. And I took the uh, development team and moved them off-site to another location and let them just think, like, uh, be as creative as possible and not have to endure the uh, the looks of, of the other team members. And I think they thought it was crazy. But Sandy Trevor, who as I mentioned uh, was so creative, he, he thought it was a great idea. And, and he basically was the driver behind all of the technology that eventually led to the success. So again, I'm going to try to put us in the timeline. Um, so it's the late... 70s like maybe 79 um that you start experimenting with this and then is it around 79 that you 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 launch as an actual product yes we launched actually you're pretty close to the timeline i think it was 79 we launched it with the name on it with the with the name of the service called micronet right right uh, as we were trying to relate to microprocessors and networks and so forth so we launched with micronet uh very quickly discovered that the name micronet was trademarked and so um, backed away and changed it to the CompuServe Information Service. And um, and you're charging by the hour, so you're still you're sticking with the sort of time sharing uh, model in terms of a business model, um, but now you're offering this to to non corporate uh, customers. Yes, uh, at a very very inexpensive rate, I might add, which also you know didn't fit with the corporate model, but yes. Because, of course, the incremental revenue, the incremental profitability was very high, even at an expensive price. So if, you, if we'd had to make a business out of it with the, just the information service revenue, it would never have flown. But we had a very strong commercial business, which helped underwrite the whole thing. Okay, so I, I love doing this, especially for things that you know we can't now uh, access and see. So if I'm, if I'm someone that signs up to use your service in 1979, 1980, um, and I log in with my, you know, uh, 300 baud modem or whatever it is. Uh, what do I see? What, what, what are the services that I can use? What are, what are, what are the things I can do? Well, if you were lucky enough to have a 300 baud modem, you got to be really careful in your timeline here, Brian. Okay. Uh, okay. 110. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty simple. Actually, it got up to 300, I guess, fairly quickly, but then of course, 1200 and 2400 and, and on up into the speeds. But uh, what you, you know, I honestly, 
can't picture in my mind exactly what the login would have looked like, but it would have been pretty simple ASCII text saying username, password. Well, and and we, then should, we should be clear. It's all text. There's no graphics. It's just text. No graphics, just text, and it's all black and white. And uh, it, it, it's uh, so. So, how do you make a uh, how do you make a service interesting that is so limited at that point in time? And you do it by providing services that people have never seen before and capability they've never seen before, such as uh, you deliver to them, uh, you know, searchable news. You deliver to them bulletin boards where they can post messages and read other people's response. And then uh, you, uh, you invent the magnificent uh, service called CB, or as it's called today, chat. Okay, uh, you know what? We're going we're gonna to do each one of those individually. So let's back up for a second. So you, originally, you already had Micronet, so like the, it's, it's uh, a commercial email. But let's talk about the, the, the bulletin boards. So um, this, is, this is true interactivity between users. So you can post threads and all these things in, in terms of, is it broken down into topics and that sort of thing? Absolutely. Uh, started fairly general and then pretty quickly began to segment. And there were some really, uh, there were some really interesting initial topics. One of them was aviation. Hmm. Uh, we had a very strong group of folks that I, I think pilots tend to be sort of innovators and early adopters. And so the pilots uh, did an awful lot on aviation safety, on flight planning, on weather. And so we got real-time weather, real-time flight planning, things like that fairly quickly and attracted a lot of, uh, a lot of pilots. And I, I have to imagine that uh, there was a lot of computer computing interest. Uh, you know, uh, uh, different different brands of computers would have their own bulletin boards and things like that. Uh, later on, not so okay. much then. I mean, you have to think back and realize that you know the IBM PC hadn't even come out yet. This mm -hmm. was these were trash eighties, and you know, uh, you, you'll know you'll know the names because you've done all this research. Mm -hmm. I can't even remember them all right, anymore. Right, right. Um, so okay. Um, there's uh, interactivity between users. Um, what I found, speaking of my research, what I found fascinating is I feel, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, early on you guys focused a lot on downloads and, and sharing programs and allowing people to sell programs back and forth to each other, right? You know, I, that doesn't pop up as being really important to me. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not absolutely, I, I can't really comment on that. Okay. I, I, I my, my, well, the, sure analogy, the analogy I would make would be like it's similar to what we would call an app store today. So you, I could go on CompuServe and, and people could leave programs for me to use. Because, again, this, these are days before um, you know, hard drives. Everything's on disk. So this ability to distribute software I found interesting. Yes. Uh, okay. I'm not sure that was a major part of, the, of what was driving the business at the time. But um, I, I think the – I think the special interest groups were really what drove it. It was people uh, talking we, to we, each other. Yes, and, and on a specific topic. And then we came up with the idea of a, creating a SysOp, a special interest group system operator. Right. And uh, we, we provided incentives for people who would become SysOps. They could get a percentage of the revenue for the special interest group, would be an incentive to run a great group. And we had some people make a lot of money that were very good SysOps. And they would help drive whole segments. And and so again, to use today's parlance, they're they're uh, keeping out the trolls. They're sort of policing these these uh, special interest groups and, and and keeping things running. 
absolutely, yes. And I, I recall, I recall one particular sysop, and I can't tell you what the uh, uh, what, what the topic was, but I believe he made about two hundred thousand uh, dollars running that special interest group, and uh, you know this was a part time job for him. And two hundred thousand dollars in those days is a lot of money. Yeah, it's decent money now. Um, okay, so and you, you mentioned this earlier. Let's let's talk about um, um, the 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 CB function. How um, this is sort of if we're talking about people interacting with each other, the CB simulator is sort of the the godfather of what we would call chat now. Yeah, so I have to tell you that I have to tell you the uh, sort of the genesis story because yeah, please. Uh, it's one of the one of the classics I think for CompuServe. Um, we were we, we were we had a executive committee meeting every Monday morning at nine o'clock. And, and of course this was the, for the whole company. And, uh, Sandy Trevor, uh, came to me before the meeting. He says, I want to, want to show you what I built over the weekend. And, uh, I said, okay. And so you would not recall this, but cause you weren't there at the time, but CB radio was really hot in those days. You know, everybody was had CB radios in their cars and trucks and they were, talking, they had handles and they would talk while they were driving and they were looking out through the highway patrol, all kinds of goofy Smoke, stuff. Smokey and the Bandit, yeah. Song, songs on the radio and movies, the whole deal. So he, he said, uh, he said, I call it CB. He said, you pick a channel and you pick a username and you type and everybody that's on your channel sees what you're typing. And, uh, and so he demonstrated for me, he built this over the weekend. And, um, I said, wow, that's really interesting. I said, I don't know if people use it or not, but we'll give it a try and see. And uh, so I said, let's tell the executive team about it, see what they think. So (laughs) we went to the executive meeting and he gave a demonstration. Now, I'll never forget the expression on these faces. They they look like, you guys are insane. Nobody will ever use that. Why are we wasting our time on all this goofy stuff? Well, you know what happened after that? It became the single biggest use of the Internet for a long time, eventually. Uh, it just simply was high. Uh, it was high tech, high touch, which was the real principle that drove the earliest days of the internet. It was how you made it personal, and how and how you used the technology to do that. And uh, so I I really uh, really give him credit for having the vision to see what that might become. Yeah, there's there's so many things that 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 pioneers like you mentioned. Um, having handles or nicknames to identify yourself, but I, 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 in the research I saw that um, you even had features like squelch, which would allow people to to mute specific uh, commenters in a thread and things like that. Yes, yeah, that, it it became pretty sophisticated after a while. Um, okay, so we've we've been talking about uh, users interacting, but also you mentioned that you know you're providing. Uh, what what can you do to interest people in this product? And part of that is providing content. So let's talk about how CompuServe, the many ways that CompuServe pioneered bringing content into an online context. Um, let's let's start with uh, uh, launching with news and and newspapers and things like that. Sure, um, I have been thinking about uh, news for some time about the potential to be able to have it be searchable and you know, and immediate and, and so forth. And of course it lent itself to text pretty well. And cause we're still, still at that point in time doing, doing to all text. Uh, so I decided that the uh, best thing would be to, I always had heard about the Associated Press and UPI. So I uh, called the local newspaper here, which is the Columbus Dispatch and asked if, you know, for a meeting and said, we're building this service and like to have the, you know, the AP wire. And, uh, 
because that's where all news came from in those days. And, mm-hmm. and uh, they said, well, uh, the AP wire is, uh, you know, they don't do that. But if you want to work on a test, well, you see if you can convince them to, to participate, well, they have to do that. So they gave us a test feed. And the technical team then took that and parsed it into the stories and found out how to, you know, set up the menus and all that sort of thing. So we had a kind of a crude working model of a, of a newspaper feed. And then I uh, picked up the telephone and called the Associated Press in New York and said, I'd like to come talk to you about an idea. And, of course, they gave me a kind of a lower-level staffer. But I met him in New York and told him what we were trying to do. And he said uh, – well, he said, first of all, the AP is all the newspapers. It's, it, it has a board of directors, and uh, they make all decisions having to this. He said, I doubt they'd be interested in this. But uh, he said, we're having our, our conference in Hawaii next week, and uh, I'll, uh, if you'll let me take this demo that you've just shown me out there, I'll show it to them and see what they think. And uh, I'll get back to you. Uh, I remember the guy's name. Uh, it was Henry Heilman, and he was, uh, he was a great guy. Uh, I've kind of lost touch with him. You have to remember now that's 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I, about a week later, I'm in Columbus in my office, and the phone rings, and he says, "This is Henry Island. He says, I'm in Hawaii." He said, "And, and uh, our uh, our board would like to come to Columbus and talk about your proposal." And I said, "Oh, interesting." Uh, I said, "That'd be great." I said, uh, uh, "When would you like to come?" He said, "Well, I'd like to come next week." And I said, "Well, who uh, who's coming?" And he said, well, and he started naming a couple of names. And I recognized a couple of them. One of them was uh, Catherine Graham from the Washington Post. And right. another one was uh, Pulsberger from the New York Times. Right. And uh, so I'm thinking, hmm, this is interesting. So um, we set it up. They came to Columbus. It was really funny because Catherine Graham's uh, secretary called me and said, can you have a car for Mrs. Graham? And I said, what's a car? And they said, well, a limousine. Well, we didn't have a limousine in Columbus in 1982, or at least not that I ever used. So anyhow, I made arrangements to have her picked up and everybody else. So 10 of these people uh, came to our little conference room and, and we made a presentation and then they said, what's your proposal? And I said, well, uh, I would like to have 10 newspapers participate in a test of an electronic newspaper. And uh, in exchange, what I'd like is a, is advertising in your newspapers of $250,000 a piece talking about this, this test, this project, and uh, and so this would be the deal. So they said, well, could we have a few minutes to talk? I said, sure. So they were in there 45 minutes. I, I remember I was sweating so profusely because they were never going to go along with this. They came back and said, um, yes, we'll accept the proposal with one condition, that we offer it to our, all of our hundred and however uh, many newspapers there were and let any of them participate that want to. Uh, <laughs> provided that the 10 of us can be in the test. Hmm. And so that was really how we kicked it all off. And I said, I have one final uh, request, and that be that the Columbus Dispatch be the first newspaper that comes online. And they agreed. So that was, in fact, how the whole electronic newspaper launched. And, in fact, the publisher of the Columbus Dispatch, John F. Wolf, passed away last Friday. And uh, there's a picture in the paper that day of, of him and, and Catherine Graham and myself standing in front of the display as we're showing the first electronic newspaper. Um, correct me on if I'm wrong about this, but does does the news also launch with display ads? Is that part of the deal that there's like an advertising rev share involved? 
you know, um, it may be, but I really, I really can't remember. It was the, the idea was they could each test whatever they wanted to test. Mm-hmm. And uh, so different papers did different things. Like the San Francisco Chronicle, I think, was particularly uh, innovative. Uh, the, uh, uh, they all did a lot of really interesting things. They, they spent a considerable amount of money learning about this product. I think they realized that this was probably their greatest threat because uh, advertising revenue made up 75% of their, their revenue stream, and they could see how this could disappear pretty quickly, and they were quite insightful. Uh, let's talk about, uh, another, uh, experiment. This is a little later. I think it's 1984-ish. Um, uh, putting, putting airline listings online for the first time. I believe with TWA? You know, I, to be honest, Brian, I don't remember which one it was first, but I do remember that was an important step. Mm -hmm. Um, were there any other experiments with, with any sort of commerce and things like that in those early days? Well, the electronic mall, of course, was the first electronic shopping that was ever done. Uh, this happened in about, I'm trying to think, probably about that time frame, maybe 84, mm-hmm. 83, 84. Uh, we began then to get some some graphic displays up. And, uh, um, you know, I can't remember exactly. The, you know, you know, Steve Wilhite invented the GIF. Right. It, in about that time frame. And we began to get some, some graphics up with the... With some of the displays, there are also color displays now starting to come out. Different things happen, but the electronic mall, if I remember correctly, had someplace around 200 vendors in it selling a variety of different services. And and this would have been sort of like a catalog. So you're not actually doing the commerce online. People would still have to pick up the phone and and call in orders. I believe there was some actual commerce online in those at those huh. at that time. Um, yeah, it was really interesting. A couple of guys. Uh, this is got a fun side story. Sure. Uh, I mentioned Sandy Trevor uh, before, and um, uh, he and a, and a and a friend have a business now that does nothing except uh, does nothing that testifies in patent cases, because almost everything that people try to patent in the internet uh, from about you know 1999 on, CompuServe had done in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, in these in these legal cases, they get uh, they they hire these guys to come in and testify. And they've also kept all the software from those days, so they can demonstrate that these things were done then. Prior art, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, they've been very successful with the prior art uh, litigation. Um, you you mentioned uh, the GIF. Uh, I don't know uh, how how involved you were with that, but we should we should mention that that that, that GIF comes out of CompuServe. Do you have any any stories around that? Well, yeah, probably the funny story. Uh, Steve Wilhite was a was a, uh, a student at Ohio State, and when we hired him uh, in our very first building on Fifth Avenue, and, and uh, he was working so hard, he he wouldn't he didn't go back to school, and uh, he was just br- a brilliant brilliant uh, developer. But I decided that I needed to give him some incentive to finish school because I didn't want it to hurt his career, so. I told him that unless he went back and finished his degree, his salary was never going to go up again. <laughs> and uh, obviously, I didn't stay with that too much longer because. Uh, but but I don't know if he ever went back and finished it or not. But I got such a kick when I saw the video of him accepting the Webby Award mm. that uh, you know that he'd gone from from that college student to building such an incredible uh, tool for, that has had such an impact on the internet over the years. 
You know, th- there is one part of this you haven't asked me about yet. Okay, um, yes. Maybe you're intending to, but, you know, the, newsp- the newspaper the newspaper, kind of project was did a great deal towards uh, expanding the market reach of, of the Constitutional Information Service, but we also needed a way to fulfill uh, to fulfill customer expectations for how they got on the service. And so we developed a product we called a snap pack, mm-hmm. which was a, which was a tearaway envelope that you could uh, open up and in it, you would have a, um, um, a password and a, or a username and a password, user number and a password. And we did a, uh, an arrangement with Radio Shack to distribute snap packs through their 4,000 stores at the time as well as included with a lot of computers. We, we did deals with most of the personal computer manufacturers, so they would ship the, the computer and it already had a snap pack in it. And that was really a, a critical factor, I think, in getting the reach that we were trying to achieve at the time. Yeah, I was actually, that was literally going to be my next question, especially because, you know, <laughs> Radio Shack... Uh, not long for this world, I suppose. But so in those days, you're in terms of of turning new customers onto the service. The 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 best way to go was directly to consumers when they're purchasing PCs. Absolutely. What about also? I haven't asked you about other competitors in this space early on. Um, there's the source, right, and and others. So. Just, you know, in a general way, paint me a picture of what the marketplace is like for online services in the early 80s. Well, the the source was around um, kind of about the same time that Micronet was getting started. And uh, um, they were, uh, you know, they were doing some interesting things. But uh, to be really honest with you, I never really considered them a competitor. Mm. Remember that we so, uh, CompuServe was public until May of 1980. And we sold to H&R Block. And uh, what H&R Block enabled us to do is it gave us a new source of capital and we could afford to take some risks in some areas. It also gave us some credibility. Uh, you know, when we were talking to the New York Times and the Washington Post about testing electronic newspapers, the fact that we were by then a subsidiary of H&R Block gave us a lot of credibility. Might have had a harder time doing that if we'd have been the little country serve on our own at the time. Um, but... There was the there was the source, and then a little bit later on there was Prodigy, but to, to be honest with you, we really didn't pay a whole lot of attention to any of them. They they weren't really competitive. If anybody took a hard look at all the services, they would have chosen CompuServe. Mm-hmm. That makes me think. And again, I promised you I wouldn't ask you to remember numbers and things like that, but. Um, in eighty four, eighty five, in terms of subscribers, are we talking about? The thousands, the tens of thousands. Like, what are what is your user base for for the consumer product, um, in in by like nineteen eighty four? Probably forty thousand, which is pretty impressive. <laughs> pretty impressive for those. Yeah, and it's, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was. And remember, you're still mostly text. You know, you're starting to hear a lot about video text and you know, and graphic formats and things like that. I mean, there was a lot of technology changes going on, but. Essentially, you know, our whole focus was on how you deliver value. And, uh, you know, we used to, I give a lot of credit to a gentleman by the name of Dan Thomas, who uh, was on my board. I had recruited him from the Harvard Business School in the middle 70s. He was a brilliant young professor, and, and he, was, he was a specialist in service businesses. I thought that was a good fit with CompuServe, and he was part of our, of our planning team all the way along. And he helped us develop a, what we call the screening criteria for applications that would deliver value. And we had kind of 
four factors that we would look at. You know, would it save the user time? Would it save the money? Would it educate him? And would it entertain him? Or would it entertain him? And our criteria was if it would do two of the four, it might be successful. But if it did three of the four, we knew it was going to be successful. And so every time we think of a new service or something, we'd kind of lay it against that screening criteria and see if it would pass. And it really turned out to be very prescient. Let me, um, I'm wrapping up a little bit, I, there's one thing that I did skip over that um, every time I've mentioned CompuServe, people always can remember those um, those uh, seven-digit uh, logins or, or handles that CompuServe had, and everyone always brings that up. So I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. So um, your, your login to CompuServe was a seven-digit number. Am, am I right in... It, was that a legacy of the 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 PDP ten architecture that you started with? <laughs> That's a good question. I really don't know. Uh, huh. If you if you really want to get some some good information on the technology, Sandy Trevor would be the guy to talk to. But I I have a hunch that you might be right, but I but I can't confirm it for certain. And, and, but I, you made me think of that with the snap packs because that's what you would if I bought or if I picked up one of those it would be printed in advance. Here's your here's your login in the snap pack. Go log in, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I I believe um, uh, you leave CompuServe in about 1985. Is that right? Correct. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question that's a, a little bit unfair because you're not around <laughs> for later on. But uh, a decade later, a decade and a half later, as you know, CompuServe um, starts to evolve and, and the web comes around and, and you know, AOL becomes the big competitor. I'm wondering if you have any sense of why CompuServe might have lost this early lead in the online services market to, to people like Prodigy or especially AOL. Well, I have a very definite opinion. Okay. And, uh, uh, <laughs> Even better. I was... Uh, I, I was I actually stayed uh, very close uh, in touch with CompuServe throughout those days. Um, <laughs> I went off to uh, build what I thought was going to be uh, the next uh, next important business, which was I, I built a second uh, CD-ROM manufacturing facility in the United States here in Columbus uh, because I believed that there would be a hybrid model for a while before bandwidth ever became big enough to really transfer you know, full, full motion graphics. And I could see a lot of applications where uh, a CD in conjunction with a PC and the information service would be a very compelling kind of information offering. So I built a CD plan. And so actually CompuServe used a lot of, uh, a lot of CDs in one of its offerings a little further down the road. So I was staying fairly close to it. Um, I really, um, in fact, I was, had some fun. I listened to Jan Brandt's uh, podcast that you uh, mm-hmm. that you did. I thought it was very good. I, I've never met her. I, met, I knew Steve Case. I met Steve Case along the way, but didn't know her. I have a, a, a comment on the carpet bombing campaign if you want to hear oh, it. Oh, sure. After please, please. Um, but my opinion is that AOL didn't win it. CompuServe lost it. Mm. Um, CompuServe was so successful financially by the mid-'90s and they were, much, they were still significantly larger than AOL. Um, I went into the CEO of CompuServe and I said, I'm really worried about AOL. I said, I think it's a very smart marketing organization. I think they've got strong investment banking. 
uh, they have funny accounting, but you could get away with it in those days. You, you know, you could capitalize your marketing expense, which nobody in their right mind would do today. Um, and so I, I, I said, if you don't watch out, um, you know, they're going to go shooting on by. And I said, right now, when you have the high road, uh, you have the ability to change the rules constantly and always make them react as opposed to, as opposed to, you know, doing it their way. And I, I'll never forget the, the answer I got from the, from the fellow. He said, we just made a hundred million dollars. He said, they're never going to catch us. <laughs> and the minute he said that I knew CompuServe was lost because the minute you think how much money you made has to do with your future success, uh, you've completely lost touch, and that's exactly what happened. They they were asleep at the switch and didn't uh, didn't stay innovative and didn't didn't move to a consumer oriented marketing approach, which was required then because you're starting to get to the true mass market. I think they were a million eight by then users or something like that. But you know if you're going to go from a million eight to eighteen million, it's a different game. So. Uh, I, I think CompuServe just simply lost it, and uh, and that's in fact what what came true. There was a very loyal CompuServe base that stayed around for many years, uh, still around probably, uh, but yeah, that was a shame in my view. So uh, before we wrap up, I can't resist uh, your comment um, from from the Jan Brandt interview. Yes, uh, <laughs> the. Uh, here is here's my comment. Sure. She actually she actually said this in there. You know, first of all, it's a very bright marketing person, and the carpet bombing campaign was interesting because I was watching it from the CD manufacturing side of the fence. Right. Uh, at the time that they they were buying these CDs, they were buying them from plants all over the world, and uh, in our plant, we had a plant here, one in Europe, and one in California. We never took that business because they wanted. You know, know, the lowest price disc possible, and they would buy them from the, you know, from all these small plants. And we were concentrating on high-value applications for the CDs that we were building and DVDs. But there was about a, I used to track the industry capacity, and at that point in time, there was about a $2 billion, uh, or two, excuse me, $2 billion disc capacity worldwide, of which AOL was using 1 billion discs. Mm. And all these plants, because the demand was there from AOL, were building capacity. In fact, there was capacity that was under construction that would have taken the, the, the total industry capacity to 4 billion desks. Well, what do you think happened when, when AOL switched and took the disks away? So now the demand is 1 billion and the capacity is on its way to 4 was the end of the disk manufacturing industry. Wow. So AOL, almost, AOL itself pops a bubble in, in, this, in this industry. Single-handedly destroyed the industry. Wow. Um, so you, you, you're... you know, that's not that's not their fault. Or, you know, they just were doing the things you're supposed to do, which is run our business the right way. But I got such a kick out of it because I always, I always thought it was a billion discs until she said it in the podcast. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. No, that's a great story. So you're talking about uh, Meditech Corporation, which uh, that that's where you went after after you left um, CompuServe. Um, and you, so you've, you basically, you've stayed in tech in, in various, in various capacities, um, over the course of your career. Um, I, I always like to wrap up with, with asking people where they are today, what they're thinking about today. And, and I believe since you're, you're still <laughs> gainfully employed and still active in tech. So 
tell us tell us what what you're into today and and what you're thinking about. Well, I'm in the time sharing business. Only today they call it SaaS, uh, software as a service. Uh-huh. Uh, w- uh, I, I work with a uh, with a terrific group of young people uh, who have built an application in the facilities management space, uh, managing maintenance, preventive maintenance, energy management of buildings, and so forth. Uh, it's a service hosted in the cloud. We deliver it all over the world, uh, Australia, Africa, Saudi Arabia. I do a lot of schools. We do uh, sports stadiums, uh, all kinds of things. But it's a fascinating business. Uh, it reminds me so much of the uh, of the early days of the information service because there's a huge demand out there, and the competitive products are, you know, kind of mostly pitiful. And uh, the the cloud or time sharing makes all kinds of new applications possible. And so we're going to build a great company. Okay, I lied. Final, real final question: When you when you first started an online service uh, back in the seventies, versus what you see people doing with uh, doing online today, is it everything that you imagined back in nineteen seventy nine? Is it not where you thought it would be by now? Is it more than you thought it would be? What What do you see when you when you have the benefit of looking back and, and seeing where things are today? I thought it would be huge. Uh, I don't know that you can always predict how it's going to get there, but you know, I'm a, I've always based all my plans on human behavior and watching how humans behave and what, you know, what they're trying to do and how they're trying to do it. And I've always seen uh, computer technology as a way to dramatically leverage, you know, human endeavor. And so I knew that uh, as, you know, as Moore's law went along and as computers became less expensive and more, available that the world is going to change completely. Uh, I think it's changing at a more rapid rate than ever before. I think there's more opportunity today than there was even back then. Um, you know, we use the term SaaS. I think SaaS is really just getting started. Uh, there are so many things out there that are still yet to be solved. And so it's a great time to be alive. It's a great time to be a young person. It's a great time to be in tech. And, uh, you know, I just think, uh, I think it's going to be a really interesting world. Uh, well, Jeff Wilkins, uh, thank you for uh, coming on the show and, and sharing your story, but also um, uh, sharing the story of CompuServe and, and how it pioneered this world. Well, thank you. It's been fun to sort of reminisce and, and to kind of ride back over the old road. So I appreciate the opportunity, Brian. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great Internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.